This is the first World Series in history at a neutral site, as well you know. And uh, what's the vibe been for you watching it? Well, I had to let my brain adjust to the fact that there are real humans in the stands. <laughs> uh, I, I think I had forgotten about that when I was watching the NLCS and turning on one of those games and thinking to myself, oh, God, is Fox doing that stupid thing with the digitalized <laughs> fans again and uh, realizing they were there? I mean... Uh, it's it's a very unique thing and um you know obviously the super bowl has <laughs> has that game in a neutral location every year but uh i think this is going to be the only time probably ever that a stadium gets a world series before it gets a real opening day <laughs> yeah yeah i mean one of many just only in 2020 moments that uh i think a couple people were, were reporting last night because the dodgers have been in globe life field since the division series that the you do you want to hazard a guess as to who the all-time leader for home runs at globe life field is at this point <laughs> it's got to be Corey seager right Corey seager yep absolutely yeah and that's in, funny in first year that's that's one of the best pieces of trivia that i've heard in this this rotten season so well brandon brandon Lau better uh, better keep it going if he wants to break that record I mean, if he continues at yesterday's pace and this goes seven, it's, he's got a shot. Uh, Brandon Lau, by the yeah. way, didn't know until they interviewed after the game. Ah, sneaky hot, I'm going to say. Throw it out there. Yeah, I wouldn't mind. You know, they, there's, some, there's, there's some lookers. You got, you got Kevin Kiermaier's eyes. Oh, yeah. You got Brandon Lau. I mean, it's a good time. Yeah, I think uh, my uh, colleague in Gay Cubs Twitter, Ryan Tomir, tweeted out in game one, very sorry to report that Cody Bellinger is a smoke show. And yeah... <laughs> Yeah, gotta gotta give him that. No, no denying. Usually, kids not a bad ball player either. Yeah, yeah, he'll he'll do in in many different ways. But uh, <laughs> I, I find that what I miss most, and uh, as a neutral site World Series, uh, what I miss most from a regular World Series telecast is that gigantic roar at the beginning of the game, like right before first pitch, as the fans are settling in, and, and as you got to experience yourself in person back in 2016. Mm-hmm. That as yeah. everybody is just getting their, oh my God, this is a World Series game face on. And you just kind of, it just starts now. And, and I find that it, there's something lacking in that. No, very much so. And, and I mean, not to disparage the Rays, it's, it's well-worn territory that they don't necessarily have a, a huge turnout at their games. But it sucks to not be able to have fans from the, those respective teams in their home ballparks. I mean, obviously, L.A. fans have had that experience, uh, albeit in, in World Series that they lost more recently. But there is something incredibly magical about that experience. And while I would have loved for the Cubs to have won the World Series this year as a, as a huge Cubs fan, as somebody who got to experience what it was like being around the ballpark and being in the ballpark in 2016, I would have felt really cheated if this was the year that they won their first World Series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a part of me that wants any year that they win the World Series, like not even the first year, but any year in general, I want to have gone to games that year. So I've got mm-hmm. in my scorecard collection moments where I got to see this championship team in person. And if they'd have won this year, of course, would have been phenomenal and great. We'd have celebrated, but there would have always been like that, just that small lingering bits in the back of my head going, yeah, and I, I'm 10 minutes away by L and I missed out entirely on seeing it in person. And that would have right. felt like, yeah, you know, I, I'd have liked to, but uh, I, I, I'll take a championship if, if <laughs> in front of me. But uh, yeah, if this were the, the, you know, actual drought breaking one, that it wouldn't be devastating is not the right word, 
but it would definitely feel like diminished, I think. No, and I don't, I don't think it would have felt the same way as it did in 2016. Right, right. Yeah, you, you would have to have, you know, a, a crowd of people there to witness it because that's, I mean, that's part of the baseball experience is otherwise it's just a random game that happens to be on the TV on the same night we could be tuning in to CNN or, or endless horrific Fox News promos as have been airing in both games. Of the right. Series. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, but, you know, even with the piped in crowd noise and now with a, with a smaller crowd, there are just certain things you can't replicate. And, and you think about all of those incredible moments in World Series history and what they would have been like in this context, and they wouldn't have been the same. Right. Yeah. You know, sure, the moment might have been as important in, in that particular game or where they were at in the series. But, you know, Kirk Gibson's home run is not the same in a neutral site. It's just no. not. Oh, God, no. God, that would be depressing. Like, yeah. Yeah. If Kirk Gibson's home run and then you hear piped in crowd noise like that's that's just that, that's almost right. It's, it's, it's yeah. in my mind. It is. It is. I mean, even. Um, you know, it's as we all know, there were a lot of Cubs fans in, in Cleveland in 2016. But the, those moments where it's like the, there's a ground ball going towards Chris Bryant and there's that two seconds where everybody collectively holds their breath. Mm-hmm. And it's not even if the series goes seven and it comes down to one play, it's not going to sound the same. Yeah, not to mention not just the sound, but those wonderful still photos of that moment where you see in the background, like the Cub fans, yeah, that are the, the Jacob Steel crowd all erupt at the same time. And next to them are Cleveland fans dejected and realizing that, yeah, we came so close and it's not going to happen. And now you'll have, you'll still have fans, but you'll have them surrounded by empty seats as if it were a Rays game in July, I guess. <laughs> or October. Or, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, really anytime. Uh, you know, to give the Rays fans credit, though, it's, I'm also finding I'm missing the cowbells a little bit. That, that that's true. During the postseason. Like, it, it, that's their thing. And you haven't heard you haven't heard it once in during this incredible run they've been on. Yeah, they're a hell of a team. Yeah, they really are. And uh, yeah, we'll dig into that uh, in a moment. Put a pin in that as this is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast, episode number forty nine, the Jake Arietta episode of Three Strikes You're Out. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports and Baseball Prospectus and stand-up comedian Rebirth a little bit this past month. It's been kind of cool. <laughs> the other voice you're hearing on this particular episode is a longtime friend of the pod and co-host of the dynamic and wonderful, can you tell I've been writing advertising copy for six hours <laughs> leading into this, uh, Cubs Brawl Away Games podcast. Adam Amoala is back with us to talk about the first couple games of the World Series. Adam, thank you for being back, my friend. Thank you for having me. I am a, I'm a friend of the pod and a friend of the man hosting the pod. Indeed. I'm both. Indeed. And uh, that, honestly, is my favorite credit of yours. So <laughs> you know, launch into Dion Warwick and Stevie Wonder now here. I, it's an honor to be part of the Jake Arrieta episode. I, I appreciate that you didn't refer to it as the Carlos Marmol episode, which it also is, I believe. I, mean, I could be wrong. Was he 49? Yeah. Uh, we yes yeah he was 49 uh and you know we could call it like the 2008 carlos marmel episode if you want the other the good vibes that go along with that because i mean he gave us some fun before it all collapsed in an astounding way exactly if this is the in fact the Car- uh, carlos marmel episode uh, we're gonna start great and then things are really gonna implode at the end 
Yeah, as long as you're not Kirk Neuenheis, we'll be okay with it. Oh boy, <laughs> very deep cut oh, for our uh, for yeah. our, for the fans of your of your show. Yes, uh, Don Ennis, my Mets fan editor. Do you know what that means? Let me know if you're listening to this because uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a moment. Uh, but that's not why you called. Um, so let's jump into uh, game two first of all because we're tied one one in the World Series as we record this on Thursday night, and game two to me. Well, the Rays had it in hand from about almost the the third inning on is when they jumped out to the three-run lead. Uh, It never felt as comfortable to me as the Dodgers win did in game one. And maybe it's just our perception of the relative offensive strength of each team. But it definitely felt for most of game two, like at any moment, the Dodgers could put together one of those endless 35-minute innings and score seven and, you know, run away with this thing. No, I don't. I don't think that's your perception. I also think that's just the reality of of what the lead was last night. I mean, obviously, Cody Bellinger came to the plate as the potential tying run in the eighth inning. So, you never had a moment like that in Game One because it was it was pretty clearly the the Dodgers game from about the the middle innings on. Um, the other thing that I thought was really astounding about last night, and this is playoff baseball for you, is that Snell went from "Is this guy going to throw a no hitter?" to "He's out of the game" four batters later, and it, it can change that quickly. Yeah, and especially with both of these teams, because the way that the Rays are set up with their starting pitching, and especially with Blake Snell, as they've mentioned several times throughout the postseason, he's not gone six innings all year. And we're talking about the 2018 Cy Young Award winner here as well. Uh, so even though he you know, missed most of last year with an injury, you would figure this is somebody that they, fit, that they have projected as their big guy, their number one ace. And he has yet to pitch even two-thirds of a full game, let alone into the seventh or eighth inning. Um, So that's something that just what he – that his body probably has gotten used to that at this point. Uh, And even though his mind is not necessarily used to it, as we saw when he was taken out early in the Houston series and he muttered, we don't know what we're fucking doing on his way out, which was kind (laughs) of fun. Um, But you're also talking about the Dodgers' offense, which – the way that they're set up, and regardless of whatever the inning situation is, if they start one of those innings where they build the momentum with either a couple of two-out walks or a walk and a hit, that could go for five or six runs within five or ten minutes, and you could be right. the deficit with them. At well, any- exactly. As we saw with that huge first inning against the Braves, they have that kind of capability. And I don't know how you would feel if the Cubs were playing the Dodgers, but if the Cubs were up five, nothing going to the bottom of the ninth, I would still be very nervous because yeah. they can just put up runs in bunches in a word petrified. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I would not feel safe for a moment, regardless of how big the lead was at any point in the game, because that's just what they do. And it's interesting to me how the two teams kind of approached their starting pitching compared to one another last night, because the Rays have three starters total. They've got Snell, they've got Glass now, and they've got Charlie Morton. And then they've got to figure it out around all of that. So they're set up to automatically bullpen one or two games in every postseason series. The Dodgers have a deep and talented rotation throughout between Kershaw, Walker Bueller. But yesterday, they decided that they're going to bullpen as well. And they bullpened with Tony uh, Gonsolin, who was great this entire season but Mm -hmm. was not used to just coming out and throwing an inning and a third or two innings and then handing it off to the next guy. And then 
in the middle innings. They handed it off to Dustin May, who I think might be even better than Tony Gonsolin. And he got crushed. And yeah. the thing I think about that is, if you're a team like the Dodgers or a team like the Yankees in the division series, one of the, a, a big market team should not have to bullpen in a situation like this because the advantage of being a big market team is that you're able to afford a deep and talented starting rotation. And a deep and talented starting rotation by any statistical measure is much more valuable than any bullpen pitcher you're going to throw out there. And I think that the Dodgers are, and the Yankees, to a certain extent, also played into Tampa's hands by saying, okay, we're going to try to play your game. And they put themselves at a deficit early, and now Tampa is back in the series. Well, but the reason I'm assuming is that Walker Bueller would not have been able to go on normal rest in game two, right? Uh, right, right. That is, he is going normal rest in game three. And, and um, I forget, if, it might have been Craig Calcaterra this morning, might have made the point, it's setting it up so that it's a Bueller, um, Jose Urias, Clayton Kershaw, uh, rotation for the middle three games and that certainly is a great setup but I still think nonetheless when you're throwing out pitchers like May or Gonsolin you can let them go a little bit you don't necessarily have to say first time first sign of trouble we're gonna switch in somebody like a Pedro Baez off of that and and for Dustin May I, I'm not sure he's used to coming into the middle innings and because I've not seen him be this this ineffective since he got called up last year Right. I mean, I guess would the counterpoint be that coming into this season, nobody could have foreseen a world where in the NLCS and ALCS they're going to play seven straight days. True. True that. And, and that certainly plays a factor into it. Uh, it it's, still feels to me, though, like it's, it's playing into Tampa's – it's giving Tampa an advantage that they shouldn't necessarily have to have. Uh, mm-hmm. And, yeah, it, it might just be a, kind of a natural outgrowth of how long – both uh, championship series once and how many pitchers they ended up using because the Dodgers, they made the point yesterday in the telecast have actually made more pitching changes in the postseason than the Rays have. Hmm. But that's also kind of a typical Dave Roberts thing. It's also interesting to consider had the Dodgers lost game one, would they have stayed with that approach or would they have used Bueller on short rest? Right. Yeah. That sounds to me like, especially because they're, they clearly don't have a lot of, postseason confidence in either Gonsolin or May that that they mm-hmm. might have opted for that uh but uh Clayton Kershaw turned out to be amazing in game one so uh he beat the hell out of the narrative for I'm very happy about that yeah I, I am too and I, we spent a lot of last week's episode with Sarah Sanchez kind of it was right after the awful start against the Braves and we were kind of uh <laughs> we were kind of not dancing on the grave but just be, just kind of observing that uh yep it happened again and yeah. it's, it's nice to have him tell us all to shut the hell up for, for at least one <laughs> more start like that. Um, yeah. The thing about his start in game one to me is I found it very similar to how he started game one of the 2017 World Series where he was matched up against Justin Verlander and just ended up outdueling him. Like he was amazing in game one of that World Series. And that was the moment where everybody thought, okay, this might be finally where he gets to put the narrative to bed. And then... They went to Minute Maid Park, and uh, bad things happened at that point. So uh, we're going to find out in Game 5 of this one uh, what Clayton Kershaw's durability in the World Series is like when the other team isn't cheating, hopefully. Oh, the the poor Astros. They they overcame so much this year. They really did, yeah, yeah. Uh, All the doubters and the haters, it's uh, it's really an inspiring story. And in 20 years' time, when MLB Network makes the documentary, it's – I cannot wait until the inspiring 
music from the natural swells up underneath uh, as they make that stirring three games to nothing comeback and just fall short, satisfying literally everybody in the country. The, the amount that MLB still promotes the Astros is very off-putting to me. It's uh, MLB's marketing arm seems to have just decided, let's pretend that this is normal and nothing happened with them. Uh, yeah, I, I, they might argue, what can we do? Because they've made it so deep into the playoffs. But I mean, right. even so, you have to know every time you put out a commercial that has an Altuve in it, that you're just going to get nothing but flack from Twitter. Yeah, it's it's very it's very 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 bizarre. And as somebody who watches baseball largely through the MLB TV app, they have these cutaways at random times to clips from you know famous games. Yeah. And there was a revolving door where they would keep showing like Altuve's walk off last year and Springer's walk off against the Yankees and all these things. Where I'm like, maybe don't like yeah. if yeah. that's a part of a regular rotation, we don't need that there anymore. I'm I'm honestly surprised although it's mlb so we probably shouldn't be surprised that everybody's clueless when it comes to marketing but yes somebody should have taken note of that and said you know we might want to pull these and i don't know maybe sub in the kurt gibson home run (laughs) right there's it's not like there's any shortage of good footage yeah hell i mean go back to bill mazeroski for fuck's sake and show me a 1960s black and white highlight like that uh totally yeah um So jumping back to game two for a second, another thing that I think was kind of hidden by the fact that the Rays managed to hang on and it was a pretty exciting game is that even though it's now tied at 1-1, the Dodgers did something that I think is a little noteworthy in that they kind of lit up both Nick Anderson and and Pete Fairbanks uh, with long home runs off the bats of uh, Will Smith and Corey Seager. And over the course of seven games, those are the guys that Kevin Cash is going to go to when he wants to shut you down. And the fact that they were able to touch up both of those guys, I have to think, is at least somewhat encouraging for the Dodgers going forward. Yeah, big time. And that's one of those moments. It's, a, it's kind of a sports cliche, but like, oh, you know, pay attention to that. Like that may come into play mm-hmm. later in the series. But it's true because if you there's going to be a time where those matchups take place in a big spot, possibly with a game on the line and knowing that they were able to get to those guys, uh, even in a game that they lost, I think it's, it's going to go a long way probably. Yeah. Not that they have any lack of confidence. So I, I would imagine Corey Seager's feeling pretty good about himself right about now, but pretty, 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 pretty good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to quote a famous Yankee fan. Um, yeah, and, and Nick Anderson has not really been good since the division series when they shut down the Yanks, and he went, I think, 40 pitches in game five. Because in uh, the championship series against Houston, he gave up two home runs. This is the, so that was his third of the postseason to Will Smith, who, just as an aside, anytime Will Smith strikes out, somebody desperately needs to play a drop of Eminem going, so fuck him and fuck you too. <laughs> But nonetheless, Nick Anderson has given up three home runs in the postseason and three home runs in the past three weeks. Uh, want to venture a guess as to how many he gave up during the regular season? Two. One. So <laughs> he, he has tripled his home run output just in the well, past weeks. I, I, unfortunately, I, I have to tell you that the state of Florida ha- this excuse me, that the, uh, the state of Florida has a pretty dubious past with a man named Nick Anderson horribly <laughs> choking in the postseason. <laughs> Oh, man. Wow. 
that do you remember that orlando magic reference is that uh yep poor son of a gun in the uh, nba finals missed two free throws oh, that would have sealed the game got his own rebound got fouled again missed another two free oh. throws oh shit. it was it's a, it's a basketball equivalent of the yips he never shot free throws well after that in his career wow he yeah. he was like an 85 percent free throw shooter and the next season shot like 40 percent from the free throw line because he was so scarred by that wow that's that is uh that is even more dramatic than Scottie Pippen's famous "The Mailman Doesn't Deliver" on Sundays back in the '97 right. finals, I think it was. Yeah, when he when he got Carl Malone at the free throw line. Yeah, uh, was that against the Lakers that series? It's the um, the Nick Anderson series. Yeah, no, it was against the Rockets. Oh, okay. They were up by three. All he had to do was hit one free throw to ice the game. He wow. missed four in a row. Kenny Smith tied the game on a three cents to overtime. Jeez. The Rockets won, and the Magic just completely fell apart. They were favored to win that series and just completely like, lost it. Yeah, so Nick Anderson, at, at this point, the worst you can do is second to worst Nick Anderson. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, so that's, I, I suppose, a bit of comfort. But, I mean, I, I, I'm still, if I'm – a Rays fan, and if I'm a Rays fan, I've been shown precisely once on TV over the past two games that I've noticed. <laughs> but if I am, I'm concerned that they, he's still missing something after they really leaned on him hard in that division series. Because, I mean, he is the guy, 0.5 ERA. He is the guy that you count on to just stop rallies if, if right. uh, he's called upon. And Fairbanks also, I mean... His was ju- just the solo home run, and he did pitch one amazing five-pitch inning before that, so I'm l- probably a little less concerned. But nonetheless, the Dodgers are flexing, but somehow Aaron Loop is the one who shuts them down, which is just the most baseball thing possible. Yeah. Well, I mean, Tampa Bay has so many impressive arms out of that bullpen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's almost unbelievable. Like, I, guys just throwing, like, easy at 100 yeah. left and right. It, it's uh, I, They're very impressive, but... Um, yeah, you wonder if, uh, I don't know, the, uh, the, you would think guys would be fresh because it's such a short season, but it's also this weird situation where ultimately the playoffs are going to comprise like, you know, 30, 40% of the total games that these guys have played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it really, it, it has the feel of like a longer lasting playoffs going into the regular playoffs, if, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, so that's, that is... Uh, a lot of a lot of high stress pitches, I suppose, too. Mm-hmm. It comes down to it. So even though you're not throwing nearly as many innings, uh, your innings tend to mean more, pretty much from the start of the season, I suppose. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, uh, and there's also some, something that's kind of interesting about the way Kevin Cash is managing that bullpen, because in Game One, we talked at the start of the podcast about how quick he was to remove Blake Snell. And yet at the crisis moment in game one, as the Dodgers were just scoring seemingly at will in that fifth inning, he left Glass now in there to throw, was it 109 pitches, which for the Rays seems almost unheard of. And yeah. the only thing that I could think of in terms of trying to figure that out was that remembering in game one against the Yankees, when the score was close, but they were at a deficit, the Rays were down in the ninth inning, he left uh, John Curtis, who is decent, but not one of his guys, on the mound and just gets shellacked for like 40 mm-hmm. pitches. And it's almost like Kevin Cash picks out certain games that he just decides, I'm not going to manage this as if it were a winner-take-all World Series game. It's, it's almost like they've kind of figured the way they've set their bullpen up for needing multiple innings from guys like Anderson and Fairbanks 
that they're just going to be okay with losing an occasional game in a postseason, which is, I, I don't know if that's the case, but it just kind of has that feel. And that's certainly the first I've ever heard of something like that. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. I mean, I, I think you're probably right. I think in, in Cash's mind, he's like, all right, well, we know whether whether Glassnow throws 109 pitches or throws 87, he you're still not going to see him again until game five. So I think in, in Cash's mind, he's probably like, well, he's already out there. It's already not looking great. Our arms in the bullpen are too valuable to use in the game that we're probably not going to win. So, I mean, it's a calculated risk. I, I guess you're you're risking overexerting or overextending glass now, and then he's not as sharp four days from now. But I, I don't I don't hate the move. I think strategically, it's it's not uh, that bad of an idea. Yeah, glass now is a just an incredible starting pitcher, and and I like to see incredible starting pitchers get leaned on in the postseason, especially now when we see guys like Snell get lifted after four and two thirds. So yeah, for philosophically, I certainly don't mind the move, but it's, it's just mm-hmm. kind of curious to me that, that he kind of is almost diametrically opposed to himself based on one game situation versus the other. Right. Uh, and one more thing about, uh, about game one too. And we, we got to go off on this because we have not mentioned the name Mookie Betts yet in this World Series podcast, and that really feels like just a foul on my part because, yeah. holy cow, uh, how do Red Sox fans got to gotta feel watching this stuff? Uh, just game after game after game, and in every conceivable way where one game it's the uh, robbing the home run at the wall in game seven, and another it's doubling off of Ozuna at third base, just being alert and making an incredible shoestring catch. Stealing, stealing multiple bases in a game, which you never see in, in modern yep. baseball. Yep, giving us a damn taco, Mookie Betts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the taco that I will not redeem, but thank you nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, in Boston, I suppose, it's the fucking taco of sadness. <laughs> uh, and, and then in game one, the signature play uh, is a ground ball to the first baseman that he manages to score on a contact play on because the first baseman has to go two feet to his right. And that's too right. much to stop somebody with bets of speed. I mean, just what a player. Well, right. the thing that's most impressive about him, and I think he's, he's in a very, very elite company with somebody like a Mike Trout. Um, to me right now, it's like Trout, Betts, and maybe Tatis has worked his way into that conversation, mm-hmm. but it's really Trout and Betts. And the thing about baseball is that like, if you're watching a basketball game, you're not going to not notice LeBron James. Like when somebody is that good and that, you know, clearly that much better than everybody else, it sticks out like a sore thumb. But in baseball, there's not that same sort of dynamic. So when somebody like Mookie Betts makes his presence known to that degree, it really gives you a sense of how good he is. Yeah. I, I think the, the closest comp you can get in baseball is the sense of anticipation for a player and in Mookie, it's in several ways. There, there's always that sense of anticipation when he's coming up to the plate. But mm-hmm. then also, if you see him kind of drifting back on a ball that looks crushed, and if he looks like he's under control, uh, it, it's kind of comparable to, I'm going to give you two comps, both of which might seem kind of over the top in different ways. It's comparable to me that anytime Jason Hayward is under control in the field, my brain automatically goes, well, he's going to catch it, regardless of how it yes. looks that. That, that is an out, and it, yeah. almost 99% of the time is the case. And then the other comment I'm going to give you is what they always describe as Willie Mays going back for the catch back in 1954, where it is just obliterated, a dead setter in the polo grounds off the bat of Vic Wirtz going 470 feet. 
but Willie Mays is running back and there's not a single moment where you watch him where you don't think, oh, he's not under control. Like he is at every step factoring in, yep, I've got it, I've got it, just got to keep going, I'll be in the right spot. And sure enough, as the ball descends, his glove is exactly where it needs to be at the moment where it, it hits the glove. And yeah. Mookie Betts, whenever he goes back on a ball now, and especially if he's like crouching underneath the, the wall ready to leap, he now has that vibe of making me think, I'm about to scream my ass off like an NBA bench warmer. He's, he's transcendently good. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there was a, a great tweet, too, from uh, a great baseball writer named Claire Smith, who went into the Hall of Fame, uh, got the J.G. Uh, Taylor Spink Award a couple of years ago. And Claire Smith goes back a long time in baseball, and she was comping Mookie Betts' game to, like, the Negro League stars of guys like mm-hmm. Oscar Charleston, who just had every single tool in the book. And Mookie has that kind of really awesome combination of little bit of the modern where he's got a great on base guy, great stats guy, obviously a great war guy, but then he's got a lot of that old school where he just changes the game on the bases. And Claire Smith, I think through a Jackie Robinson comp in terms of how every time he's on base now, as we've seen in the world series, you've got to pay attention because at any mm-hmm. point he could do something that you are not expecting and change the game around. Yeah. And, and the other thing, since I alluded to it before, the thing about watching bets at this point in the playoffs, and obviously we've we've seen him there before, it makes me realize how cheated I feel to not have seen Trout in the playoffs more. Big time, yes. And I really, really, really want that to happen. Also because I love Joe Madden, but really because I want to see Mike Trout in the playoffs for yeah. more than three, three games seven years ago. Yeah, it's, it's astounding to me that the Angels have far and away, or from the past seven or eight years, far and away the best player in the game. They have someone who, when he's healthy, and Shohei Otani is the most exciting player, you can make an argument, most exciting player in the game. Mm-hmm. You've got now Anthony Rendon, who, political views aside, we saw last year how much a difference he can make in a World Series lineup. Yeah. And they still can't do a damn thing. And, and, got, oh, and as, oh, as evidenced by, by signing Rendon, yeah. they have money and they spend it. Yeah. It's, it's astonishing how screwed up that organization is, that you have – these athletic gifts given to you and you just you you can't even build competence around them enough to nudge them over the line in a year where eight teams in each league make the playoffs it right exactly infuriating uh one more thing i want to say about bets too that uh given that claire smith dropped a jackie robinson comp on him maybe we shouldn't be surprised boston got rid of him ah uh, come on go. now we kid them because they're racist why would we integrate any time before the 70s? <laughs> Why would we do that? Well played, sir. Well played. Uh, Adam, uh, do you have anything to plug? Well, I still got you here. Oh, uh, well, uh, you already alluded to it, but I do a, a baseball podcast with our good friend Kevin McCaffrey that is called Cubs Brawl, the Away Games podcast. Uh, we have episodes every Wednesday. And I also am part of a basketball podcast called Horse. Uh, you can find us at Horse Hoops on uh, Instagram, at Horse underscore Hoops on Twitter. And the whole idea there is that it's about basketball, but not really. It's about all the all the fun, weird stuff uh, about basketball, not so much about the stats and, and the minutia, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, that's that's what I got. And otherwise, you know, uh, find me online, uh, Adam Mamawala. I'm sure you're, I'm sure my name is in whatever link you clicked on. You can find me. I'm not I'm not too hard to track down. 
Awesome. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm certainly hoping that next year's edition of Cubs Brawl, the Away Games podcast, is also a World Series edition, because that would be kind uh, of cool. It would be really nice. Yeah. I miss yeah. it. Yeah, I do too. It, it's, it's nice to be able to say I miss it in the sense of, oh yeah, I remember what that was like. Yes. Speaking of which, happy four-year anniversary of Kyle Hendricks throwing one of the best games of all time. Oh God. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's as we talked about on this year podcast before the season started still one of the greatest memories of my life as I looked my roommate in the eye and screamed at the top of my voice, hug me. <laughs> uh, that is something that would not be welcome in a pandemic, but I'm happy that you did it then. <laughs> it's a virtual hug. I suppose my friend. Yes, exactly. Yes. This has been worth every virtual hug. Always great to talk to you, Adam. You as well. Well,